Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Miri Rubin. I'm a medieval historian here at Queen Mary, and it's a real pleasure to have so many of you here. And I know some of you have come from out of town and the far reaches of London, so a very warm welcome. Um, many of you, I'm sure, have come to hear Edmund de Waal and may not be quite sure what the Leo Beck Institute is. So maybe just a word about that. So about a decade after the Second World War, the Leo Beck Institute initiative was created across four cities, Jerusalem, Frankfurt, London, New York, to work for the uh, preservation, conservation, appreciation, research into the history and the cultures of German-speaking uh, Jews. This obviously needed more than uh, the loving work of uh, survivors and relatives. It needed sort of uh, an institutional placement, and these four centers became really impressive centers for research and um, the London one, for almost a decade now, uh, has its home here at Queen Mary. And we're very lucky in the School of History because uh, the coming of the Leo Beck Institute with its expertise has meant that we can teach a much broader array, offer our students so much more at both undergraduate and postgraduate level. But also, the Leo Beck Institute is, is characterized by a real commitment to public engagement with the most extraordinary uh, uh, sort of events, including a Daniel has a particular line of very funky sort of film screenings. And uh, so it's really not just us and the campus, it's our, it's our neighborhood and Londoners in general who benefit from everything that they bring. But above all, this is the work of history and memory. So it became clear that once we decided that there will be an annual Leo Beck Institute lecture, that Edmund Deval will be one of the first we would like to hear, because I think in that extraordinary combination of potters, you know, they're both delicate and robust. He did this, he just pulled off this extraordinary feat of history in his 2010 wonderful, wonderful book, uh, The Hair with Amber Eyes. And I think sort of continuing that work in 2015 with The White Road. So right now, I'm just delighted that we're all here on this occasion, and I'll hand over to the chairman of the Leo Beck Institute Advisory Board, that's Professor Sander Gilman, who will introduce our speaker. Those of you who were in Vienna a few years ago saw at the Kunsthistorisches Museum a most remarkable show. It was remarkable not only because of the objects, but because of the story. Um, the curator, the person who more than anything else conceived of the show and carried it out, was a British potter. Now, that is a kind of contradiction in terms because the show reflected on Jews and their place in history, specifically in Central Europe, in terms of the objects, not necessarily porcelain and pots, but Netsky and various objects from the family of the potter and the city in which the exhibit was held. It was, of course, Edmund de Waal's attempt to put his story, his family story, into the material space of a museum. Now, those of us who have been 
hot fanatics. You know that the British tradition, starting really with Bernard Leach, has been one of the greatest traditions. And a few years ago, a book appeared which both encapsulated that tradition, but also introduced me to a potter whom I'd known only marginally, and that was Edmund de Waal. Edmund's book on it, Bernard Leach, is a kind of peon to what aesthetics and the material world have to offer. Out of that telling of that story came a series of books. Mary's just mentioned them. One, a history of the way that Edmund de Waal undertook to examine the family, the Afrusi family, from which he comes. And more recently, the story of porcelain itself from China to Central Europe, to the concentration camps of the 1940s. Edmund Duval is a storyteller. He's a storyteller in his books, but he's also a storyteller in his pots. He does these extraordinary exhibits of these, as Mary elegantly said, fragile but extremely, extremely powerful objects. We at the Leo Beck Institute London are really pleased that he's accepted our invitation to talk with us about how he imagines telling family stories, family stories which are complicated and which are rooted also in the legacy of objects, objects that we can touch, we can see, and we can experience. I'm truly pleased to welcome Edmund Duval here this evening. Thank you so much for that incredibly generous and daunting introduction. I've just arrived an hour and a half ago and had this extraordinary experience of walking into the library of the Leo Beck Institute here and feeling as I scanned the shelves and ran surreptitiously my hands over the volumes there that I was in my grandmother's library. It was quite extraordinary to see the same books here that I've known throughout my life. What I'm trying to do tonight is to try and weave together two different parts of my life, which are really one life and one practice, which is, as that generous introduction said, a kind of storytelling. And what I want to do is to see how sustained that storytelling can be, what gets left out, what gets brought into focus. Uh, what is unsayable, which of course is something that collectively us tonight matters enormously. What is unsayable? What cannot we find? What cannot we come near? 
And what I want to start with is an experience of being 17. I'd run away from school, um, a very conventional school um, in Canterbury, uh, where I had a conventional Anglican upbringing in the deanery, um, in the shadow of the cathedral. And I ran away from school to be a potter. And I went off to Japan. And I had a wonderful, wonderful summer of sitting at the feet of elderly Japanese potters and making terrible pots. And at the end of that summer, having run out of money, I arrived in Tokyo and went to the apartment building where my great uncle Iggy lived and rather apprehensively <coughs> rang his doorbell. I was in jeans with very long hair and I think possibly a tie dyed shirt, but that might be just misremembering it. <laughs> and the door opened and there was an extraordinarily handsome man in his 70s in a beautiful suit with a pocket handkerchief in his suit pocket who greeted me, kissed me on both my cheeks, brought me into his extraordinary apartment overlooking Tokyo and gave me my first whiskey sour. And waving an arm around this apartment, said to this huge vitrine that took up a whole wall of this beautiful space, showing nothing but 264 ivory and wooden netsuke. There's a family story there. And then the conversation moved on to Proust and wine and where I should get my clothes. <laughs> and 20 years later, I went back for my great uncle's funeral. I'd got to know him incredibly well and loved him enormously. And I went to the grave in the Buddhist temple in the south of Tokyo that he and his Japanese partner, Jiro, had bought. And as the family member there, I was asked by the abbot to say something in memory of this Austrian elderly Jewish gentleman who had lived half his life in Tokyo. And I said the Kaddish for him in this Buddhist temple. And then I went back with Jiro to this apartment and we opened a bottle of Sancerre and we drank his health. And Jiro said, Iggy wanted you to have the Netsuke. I'd inherited this ridiculous collection of Japanese objects and they arrived. In my house in Camberwell, I had small children. <laughs> I was a potter, not very well off, and they arrived. And there they were, provocative objects. What the hell was I going to do? There are many, many reasons for giving things to people. You can give them because you love the person you want these objects to go to. You can give them because you know they'll look after them. 
You can give people things because you know they will complicate your life. And in this case, they sat there and complicated my life. I knew the rudiments of this story. And I realized that either I could have these little, beautiful, tactile, funny, erotic, seductive objects for the rest of my life in a vitrine, or I could go on a journey to try and find out why I had been given this story. So I rang my elderly father, now in a home for retired Anglican clergymen in Islington, and said, you've got to help me. You've got to tell me what you know. He was terribly pleased, like all elderly people are, when you say that you want their stories. But he said, there's a problem. All I have is this. And he came down to my studio with a manila envelope with four letters in them and the complete works of Thomas Mann. That's all there is, he said. That's the family archive. It's your problem now. But I knew enough of the story of these to set off. And I decided that if I was going to do this story, this story of these objects, I was going to do it properly. So I began my journey in Paris. Because what I knew was that my family, Iggy's family, my grandmother's family, my father's family, my family, had come from Odessa, that they were Jewish and ridiculously rich, that in the early part of the 19th century they'd cornered the market in grain, and then sent their children out like the Rothschilds to conquer Europe and marry good Jewish girls, and they'd sent half the family to the Rue Monceau, this extraordinary hill of golden houses where all the Jewish families from the Levant and from Russia were arriving and built themselves a house here and half the family had been sent to Vienna. So I start in the Rue Monceau where three brothers from the Afrusses are sent and the oldest one is the banker, becomes the banker, marries the right Jewish girl, the heiress. The second one is a playboy, which means that when my book came out in 2010, I discovered I had ridiculous quantities of Parisian cousins. <laughs> and the third one was Charles Ephrussi. And here he is with his secretary, Jules Lafourgue, walking down the room also. He was a young man with an extraordinary apartment in the family house and a ridiculous amount of money. And he loved art. He had nothing to do but collect. And so when he was 20, he started to collect for his apartment. And he bought Medici embroideries. He bought this incredible Medici bed and unpicked the M for Medici and put E for uh, Frissi. <laughs> He bought from the Louvre a famous Savonnerie carpet of the Golden Winds and cut it down to size for his drawing room. It's true, I am appalled. And then he started to write about art. He started to write for the Gazette de Beaux-Arts and then bought the magazine 
he started to give dinner parties. I found this in the terrifying archives of the Louvre, the most hateful French archivists possible, but here they were. And this is a collection of society people, of artists and of poets. He started to have a salon. And the more I discovered about this life in the Rue Monceau, the more I discovered these traces, the traces, the spur of his life. Because here he is at the back of the boating party. He developed these friendships with artists and bought canvases fresh off the easel. He brought 20 pictures from Renoir, this beautiful gypsy girl, this extraordinary, this is the one I want, this is now in Chicago. <laughs> and he bought Monet early and seriously. This is in the National Gallery. Charles, you remember this picture. And here it is, this extraordinary, life-giving, moment of apprehension. And this is what he's after when he's writing early about these Impressionists and bringing these extraordinary pictures by Sisley, by Manet, by Degas, by Bert Morisseau. He's bringing all these pictures, 40, 50 pictures, into his apartment because what he wants is conversation. And who is going up those stairs in the Rue Monceau? I find this painting and I discover the story. He buys it off the easel of the artist. It costs 800 francs. He sends 1,000. And two days later, this arrives in the room also, saying, these have slipped from the bundle. You must have these too. And as part of this life of conversation, of Jewish assimilated conversation, there are these netske. Everyone else in the gratin of Paris is buying Japanese art. Everyone else lives like the goncourts down the road, with fans, with kimono, with lacquer, with Japanese portraits and pictures. And so netske, these little objects that he buys with his mistress, more cousins, many more cousins, <laughs> complicated cousins, are for handing round and for provoking conversation because that is what objects do. That's what is at the heart of these kinds of bijouterie. They provoke conversation. And so while some of the other cousins are building this kind of thing, this is uh, uh, the Villa Fouissi Rochille down at the Cap Ferrat, uh, and they're making these kinds of interiors. The kinds of interiors that when I see this here, when I think of Wadsden exactly the same period as this, I think assimilation. I think this is proving how European, how Parisian you can be, how English you can be in the case of that wonderful Wadsden Faux Chateau. But actually what you're doing by buying this kind of stuff as a Jewish family and providing yourself with this kind of context is, of course, saying that you're staying put. So what you're doing is you're making extraordinary, strong statement. And it might be that you have, 
your racing colours, it might be that you're, you're racing at Longchamp, it might be that you do all these things, but all these, all these things are symbolic of staying put. That's what you're saying. And Charles, my Charles Effrissi, this writer, this extraordinary collector, this man who has as his secretaries in the room also Jules Lafourgue, the great poet, and then, goddammit, Proust, which is where it gets truly complicated because, of course, Charles Swann and Charles Effrissi are deeply connected. This wonderful man starts to get, I'm afraid to say, a little grand. He buys a bigger house. He starts to collect French furniture. And God help me, he starts to collect Gustave Moreau. This is where I really get troubled by Charles. But this lovely man, this man who cared about art, who cared about the function of collections, that societal meaning of what collecting and handling should mean, in old age, decides that he's had enough of these Netsuke. And his favorite first cousin, my great-grandfather, Victor Efrussi, is getting married. And he's part of the Vienna side of the family. So he is in Vienna, and he gets, for his marriage gift, 264 Netsuke. They're sent from Paris to this ridiculous house in Vienna. Because, goddammit, the room also is one thing, but if you're in Vienna, if you're living on the Ringstrasse, this is the family house, you have to do things a little bigger. <laughs> this is the Palais Ephrussi. It is a total nightmare. <laughs> and so I go with the Netsuke on this trip, this journey from Paris, from this extraordinary kind of conversation to this gilded place, this tomb of gold. And there's a moment when I stand in front of this Palais of Frissi and wonder whether really I should just go back to South London. But I go in. <coughs> this is the ballroom. And it takes me a long time as I stand here in this extraordinary house to realize that what I'm looking at is not just rich Jewish society on Zionstrasse, that extraordinary series of palais that sit arcing round Vienna alongside the Opera House and the Burgtheater and the Kunsthistorische Museum and the University. But when I look up, I look and I realize that this, the only place where Gentile women were allowed to come. These are wall paintings and ceiling panels, which are, in fact, images of the destruction of the enemies of Zion. These are the only places in the whole of Jewish Vienna 
where these particular images are being created. And this terrible house is actually also a symbol of staying put. It's a very strong statement by the Ephrises of Vienna that this is what they're doing. It's full of coded symbols. And in this monstrous house, my great-grandfather Victor, a scholarly man who'd wanted to become a rabbi, was getting married. And he was getting married in a hurry. It's 1899. He's getting married in a hurry because his elder brother, the heir of this extraordinary fortune, has gone and eloped with their father's mistress. <laughs> this is Vienna. Think about it. You elope with your father's mistress and has been struck off and exiled to Biarritz. So Victor has to get married and have heirs in a hurry, and he chooses a baroness from the palace next door. <laughs> My poor great-grandmother, Emmy, here in characteristic, modest attire. <laughs> So Victor, the scholar, and Emmy, who is in favour of dressing up and in favour of almost anyone but my great-grandfather. Here she is with an archduke who she had a 10-year relationship with. More cousins. <laughs> and had her own children. My grandmother and Gisela and Iggy. And these little Netske arrive in Vienna in 1899 along with presents from all over Europe to celebrate their wedding. And where do you put these slightly embarrassing Japanese French things? They end up in her dressing room. This dressing room, uh, which is the only place in this whole palais where these children growing up see their mother when she's being dressed by her maid to go off to the opera, to dinner, to an assignation. So that is where these objects arrive. And this is where storytelling really kicks in. Because this is the moment that I remember my grandmother telling me that she remembers her mother loving the moment of intimacy when she saw the children and allowed the children to play in this nightmare palace. And this is where Iggy, in old age, would pick up particular favorite things from this vitrine and arrange them in the patterns that he remembers them being placed on the floor of his mother's dressing room. And this is the place they grow up in. And what a place to grow up, particularly for my grandmother, who wants to become a scholar. And she looked out of her bedroom window and saw the university. That's the palace. That's the university. And despite her mother's intentions that she should just marry, she took herself to the Schotten Gymnasium, the only girl ever to be there. She studied and she studied and she studied. She started to write poetry. And as a teenager, she started to write to Rilke, and bloody hell, 
he starts to write back. <laughs> Again, when you see this picture of her, my wonderful, wonderful grandmother, Elizabeth, who would be so proud that I was speaking with the words Leo Beck behind me, uh, this scholarly, poetic, wonderful woman who cared more about the life of the book, who cared more about the life of ideas than anyone I know, managed to get an education. And what an education. This is now three years into my short research into my family. And I find this wonderful book, which is a book of the theater and opera that a Jewish family would go to. This is her opera book. And when I see this, I see how terribly, badly I've treated my children. Look at what they see day in, day out. Lessing, Shakespeare, Schiller, Goethe, of course, Wagner, Shakespeare. They go constantly to opera. I'm going to actually have to hurry up. Constantly, constantly to opera. They go constantly down the road to theatre. They try and have the kind of life that you should have in Vienna in 1916, in this remarkable city where all nations come and mingle. All nations walk the streets of the Ringstrasse. And so Elizabeth, my grandmother, becomes a lawyer. She runs away to Paris. She marries my Dutch grandfather. And she gets out of this claustrophobic city. And Iggy, Iggy is sent off to become a banker. He hates it. He is two things. The first thing, and it's important, is that he's gay. He doesn't want to marry another Jewish girl. And so he too runs away to do the one thing that he wants to do, which is to be a fashion designer. He runs away to New York and becomes, in his words, the worst fashion designer ever known across the Atlantic. And it may be true. But he runs away again from Vienna. And Gisela, the daughter, the third good daughter, marries into a great Spanish Jewish family, the Bowers, and disappears. And so my great-grandmother, Emmy, and my great-grandfather, Victor, are left in Vienna in 1938. And it's at this moment, of course, that the storytelling, particularly for this audience here tonight becomes profoundly difficult. Because how can you actually genuinely tell the story about what happens? And to try and tell the story of those weeks, I found by far the most challenging thing that I've ever attempted to write, and challenging genuinely because it matters more than anything else I've had to write. And the bare bones of the story are very simple, though they are still very, very painful, which is that on the night of the Anschluss, 
The gates of the Palais were left open by the doorman who'd been there for 43 years. That the door of the apartment was broken into, that Emmy was assaulted, that Victor was beaten up, he was 74, and that the looting began, which then went on going from a villa, from a random looting of just things that were to hand, to the systematic, doctrinal looting of the house, the dispossession of the family of this place that they had as their home. And Victor was made to scrub the streets like so many and was made to sign away the bank, all the possessions, everything they had. And my grandmother, with great bravery, went back to Vienna and managed to get her parents across the border, the Czech border, to their house in the country, to Kervicesh, where Emmy committed suicide in October 1938. And in 1939, Victor, my grandmother, finally got their permits and arrived in England with a suitcase, another story, another suitcase, like so many other stories. And Iggy, in America, joined the American army, and I find this very moving. He fought D-Day, this is his Jeep, and he put his sister's name on the Jeep and fought all the way across Europe and fought very, very bravely indeed. For some reason, the fact that he put his older sister's name on his Jeep always makes me feel intensely moved. And in 1945, at the end of the war, Elizabeth went back to Vienna to this derelict house and there was an American lieutenant. There was almost nothing left in the house at all apart from some furniture that she said that was so ugly even the Gestapo wouldn't loot it. And this American soldier said there is someone here who might know the story of what's happened. And it was Elizabeth's mother's maid, Anna, who met my grandmother and produced in the winter of 1945 the collection of Netsky that she had hidden during the looting of the Palais and had kept them safe throughout the war and she gave them back and it's an extraordinary act of intimacy, of courage, 
of storytelling and of preservation. And it is extraordinary. And it means that when my grandmother brought this collection back to Tunbridge Wells, where they were living, and Iggy arrives as a totally deracinated man with nowhere to go, having been demobbed by the American army, a man who cannot live in Europe, and that's a story we hear again and again and again, a man who could not go back to Europe, who could not go back to America. And he says that one evening in Tunbridge Wells, it's the banality of Tunbridge Wells that matters here, that they got out this attaché case of all these childhood netsuke. And Iggy looked at them and he said, I know what to do with them. I'll take them home. So in 1946, he puts them back in that case and unbelievably, he goes to Tokyo, to a destroyed Tokyo. And here he is, this handsome man. And what does he do? He goes to Tokyo and he builds a house and he builds a vitrine for the Netsuke. He builds a home for storytelling. And here they are. And he meets his partner, Giro. I love this photograph. And Giro and he have a life together. And then Iggy throws parties and opens up the vitrines and hands them round. It's the third part of this storytelling through touch. And that's how I see them for the first time. And that's the first time that I realize that it becomes my story when I stand here at this grave, Efrisi Sugiyama, the place that they are buried together, and realize that I have to tell the story. But how the hell do you tell the story? How do you end the story? Because thinking about what home means for a series of people who are endlessly on their journeys, who are endlessly deracinated, who move from place to place, but each time they move, they think that that's it, that's where they've got to. How do you tell that story? So I go to Odessa, to the beginning, not the beginning, they come from a shtetl. Of course they come from a shtetl to Odessa. But I come to Odessa and I find, and then of course this is their bank, that's the house and that's the guest house. Beyond it, I find the place where this family, this Jewish family, begins. So because by this point I know exactly how to tell the story, which is through touch. I go into this golden palais, their first golden palais, and I find it's full of Ukrainian workmen. And the foreman says to me, you're really lucky. We've just cleared all the shit out of here. It's now air-conditioned. All the panelling went last week. 
So I stand on this balcony and look out into the chestnut trees, over into the Black Sea, and realise I've got to come home and start writing. I can't keep on travelling. We all know people who can't start writing. All of us know these people who can't start writing. So I go home and I start to write, and I realise that actually what I'm writing about is the fact that my father never told me anything about this story. I realised that I grew up in a deanery in Canterbury, and that when my father's portrait was painted in 1978 to go alongside all the other 500 years of portraits of Anglican clergymen, he asked his cousin, his Viennese cousin, Marie-Louise von Montesitsky, who had known him since childhood, Jewish exile in Hampstead, who'd known him all his life, a great painter, to paint his portrait. And that when she painted him, she'd painted him as a rabbi. <laughs> and that when faced by this with the Archbishop of Canterbury, <laughs> she'd said in public in the deanery, well, you might be the Dean of Canterbury, but you're still a Jewish boy. <laughs> and that I'd never understood that the total silence of my father, that the odin cadence that I'd got of any of this sense of loss and fullness was in his accent. The only thing that said that he came from somewhere else. So trying to tell this story about touch brought me into the realisation that I was trying to tell a story to try and get my father to talk. And I have to say, it worked. And it worked because when the book came out in German, we went back to Vienna and it was the first time I'd been in Vienna with my father, and I took my wife, Sue, and I took my two sons, who were eight and seven. And we stood in the Palais Ephrasi, and I talked about restitution, and I talked about the fact that you can wait for restitution all your bloody life, or you can restitute stories yourself. And when we'd finished, my dad took my two children and went up the stairs and started to remember. So it works. But what do you do with that stuff? What did you do with that kind of storytelling? And what do you do when you get a phone call from the Kunst Historische Museum, who say that they've got a little neoclassical temple on the Ringstrasse where they put on contemporary exhibitions? It's called the Tasius Temple. What do you make for a public space in Vienna? What do you take back to Vienna if you're a potter? So, what I decided to do was to make a poem. 
I made a poem called Lichtzwang. It's a poem in memory of Paul Celan. Celan, of course, the great poet of memory and the great poetry. Poet of the colour white, Lichtzwang, light duress. And so I made two vitrines with 264 white pots in it. And I put Celan's poems on the wall. I wrote them there. And for nine months, this installation was there in this park. And people came and looked, and the tramps came and drank their wine, and mothers brought their children and a really bad dance group did a very bad dance <laughs> installation, bless them. And of course, the effing Viennese critics hated it, as they would. But I made a poem for Celan in Vienna. But when I came back, I realized that I'd made the wrong poem. And so I made another huge poem for Celan, which I called Black Milk, from Todesfuge, Black Milk of Morning. I could read Celan to you all night, but I'm not going to, because all of your German is a hell of a lot better than my German. But these are black pots. Because in that incredible, powerful fugue, Celan talks about black milk. And black milk, of course, is curdled milk. It's white things turn dark. And I make white things out of porcelain. There is nothing whiter in the world than porcelain. But for me, the experience of the whiteness of porcelain also has this possibility of turning very black indeed. Whiteness, as we know from Celan, is the colour of Heimke, of homecoming. Whiteness is the colour of his mother's hair that he'd never seen. It's snowfall, but blackness is also there, and porcelain can turn black. So, black porcelain, two other things. Quickly, last year, two projects last year, the first in this city. I thought I have to talk to you about Berlin because I had an invitation to make a work in Berlin. And I went to the gallery that represents me in Berlin and I walked in and I realised that this gallery overlooks the school where Walter Benjamin spent his school days. And I realized that the only thing I could do in Berlin was to work with the Benjamin archive. <coughs> so I knocked diffidently on their door, and they said that they would be very happy to do an exhibition with me. I remain so privileged and moved that I was allowed to spend time. Benjamin 
for me is 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 remains the person who understood not only what collecting means that collecting is in itself a form of storytelling but understood as he said in a beautiful line that that the poet and the rag picker are both the same person the rag picker picks up discarded unrecognized scraps and so does a poet poesis only happens when you pick up neglected things and of course benjamin is the poet the storyteller the writer who understands paris who understands cities who understands childhood who understands why you would record every single book you ever wrote who writes on bus tickets who collects children's toys who when he unpacks his library knows where every single book comes from how could i not want to work with benjamin so i make a piece called archive this is my first ever piece which has words and pots together and this is now in the jewish museum in berlin and i write on the walls of the gallery i don't know what i'm showing you so you can't see a thing of this um and then i make a uh, big white vitrines and black vitrines which are storytelling and then i make a piece which i called on the eve of departure and it's the first piece that i make where i start to use fragments i start to use shards broken things things that i've picked up in my own practice along the way and i try and keep these broken things in some kind of energetic connection to a whole controlled vitrine it's my way of saying that benjamin the presiding force behind how i understand german literature understands that it is the fragmentary part of storytelling that has the most power and then i make a piece called porbu in memory of the place where he died and then and then and then i make my biggest ever installation which is called irkunst it's a wonderful neologism irkunst the art of getting lost but that's at the heart of benjamin it's a memorial piece it's eight huge black charred packing cases unpacking my library is for me a text i come back to year after year but in these packing cases i have put hidden pots lit only by daylight i've put things you cannot reach i've put broken pots i've put shards and there are things you can see and things you can't see but because i hate melancholy i also make a library for walter benjamin and this is something i want to bring to you so over 5 years i've collected 380 editions of walter benjamin in every language going because of course he never saw much of his writing in print so i thought what i'd do is to make a language possible for everyone who came to this exhibition i made a huge table with berlin in the year that he started walking to school uh, i found the paper source where he managed uh, which he he used the same paper factory that he had his his, his notebooks from 
and for five months, uh, over 4,000 people came and wrote letters. Red Benjamin wrote letters, and we sent them all the way around the world. And because you're an archive, you'll understand that there is an archive stamp, that everything got stamped. And letters arrived everywhere. It was an extraordinary experience to bring writing about Benjamin. I love these ladies. They were fantastic. They spent hours there. It was wonderful. So just trying to create a library about Benjamin seemed to me a proper way of understanding, understanding Irkunst, the art of getting lost. Because, of course, you can be lost in a book and a text as much as you can be lost in a work of art. And here are letters. And then the final project, and this, I have to say, was a total nightmare. It was Vienna. It was an invitation to do an intervention. And is there any uglier word in the art world than intervention in this hallowed place? What was I going to do in the Kunsthistorisches Museum? Was I just going to choose my favorite Titian and walk away? That might have been, in retrospect, a hell of a lot easier. But for me, of course, this institution, this building, is also a highly cadenced and compromised institution. It is the Kunsthistorische Museum, as you know, that was the motive force behind the looting of Jewish Vienna. It's the Kunsthistorische Museum that holds at bay for a generation, two generations, and then three generations, restitution of enormous amount of treasure that was taken from families and books. So what do I do while I'm walking around desperately the Kunsthistorische Museum. And then I find this. It's an extraordinary watercolour by Dürer. He wakes up in the middle of the night with a nightmare of the end of the world. He sees the heavens descending, the world engulfed in water. He has no agency. He's totally alone. No agency during the night, alone. And I realized that is it. That is the crux of what I want to do in the Kunsthistorische Museum. I want to do something about anxiety. So I make an exhibition about anxiety in Vienna. How cool is that? <laughs> so I do an extraordinary complex few years fighting with curators all the way along the way because no one wants to do an exhibition about anxiety. They want to do it about beauty and lucidity and splendor. But I want to do it about shadow. I want to do it about fear. Corals, this extraordinary collection of corals from the Kunstkammer. Did you realize that corals in Renaissance thinking are the hair of Medusa turned Read. I want to do it about the gaze, about being looked at. I want to do it about poison, 
these are these extraordinary bazaars you'd keep close to you. I want to do it in the dark. That was another year. <laughs> um, I want you to find things. I don't want there to be texts. I want you to explore things uh, in all kinds of ways. And so in October, I open this exhibition called During the Night. And I make a piece for it, which you can see in the back, which is full of lead, porcelain and lead, poison and beauty. And in this exhibition, I try and bring storytelling. They hated me showing this. This is broken things, <coughs> broken crystal dragons. They said, we've got really good ones here. <laughs> but you might choose, if you thought about it, to have broken glass in an exhibition in Vienna. Think about it. Please think about it. Um, and extraordinary medieval instruments, just that extraordinary sense of sound. And this, the devil in the glass, a piece this high, which is uh, a leftover from a combination, from an exorcism. And extraordinary, extraordinary things. And at the heart of it, a very simple thing, which is Dura feeling alone. And actually trying to make an exhibition where you feel alone in a beautiful museum is very difficult. But we tried, and I made my piece for it. And then one night in November, for the first time ever, the Kunsthistorisches opened all night. And we had an extraordinary series of conversations and music. And I hate staying up late, because it's very frightening, because what happens late at night, early in the morning, two in the morning is when I gave my lecture, is that all those boundaries come down, those boundaries that we keep so carefully hidden, so carefully policed, and those boundaries between anxiety, our consciousness, and our fears become very present indeed. During the night is not a good time to do something, but it's also the time when art begins to happen. And it's also the time when storytelling begins to happen. And so finally, I do this show. If I'd thought about it, spending four years on an exhibition about anxiety, I want my therapist paid for. <laughs> and I come back to my beautiful studio in glamorous West Norwood, and I make a final piece. And this is the piece that I want to leave on screen, because I've overrun. And this is the piece for you, because it's called The Reader. And it's an elegy for my great-grandfather, Victor, the scholar the man who saw his library of wonderful books taken away and put on a lorry and disappear, but kept reading and in old age could quote 
Virgil to my father in Tunbridge Wells. So this is a piece called The Reader, and it's black porcelain, and it's pieces of steel, corten steel, and pieces of marble. And you may think that all those squares are places of absence, but actually they're places of fullness, because it is actually only by seeing those places where we have lost things that we can begin to tell our stories. Thank you very much. I never overrun. I never, ever, ever. I've never overrun in my life. I'm and, so and, sorry. And I must admit, I did not want you to stop. <laughs> um, let me open it to questions, queries, moments of silence. <laughs> there are microphones. There may be no questions, yeah, and I, that I, may be just I, perfect. I, I mean, I was you know, say, we all have, have things to go to. Some of us are completely overwhelmed. Well, 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 well I, I, I'm, not, I'm just knackered, so I'm not So, Blissfully none. Ah, yes, no. ma'am. Could, can we get a... Uh, uh, there's yes, a lady waving. And then two. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm speechless, almost, <laughs> from what you said, because it's been totally compelling and captivating and lyrical and exquisite. And I love your really iambic mentality. Thank you very much. you noticed. I wanted to ask a slightly technical yeah. question. Yes, yes. On the, um, this, the delving into an archive. Yes, yeah. And, for instance, the book of visits that Elizabeth made. Yeah. So you brought it up on screen, yeah. but how did you find it? So, who is helping you? Yeah. Who are these well, people to, to, to make this stuff for Okay, you? so that's a really great question, which is how the hell do you do it? Um, question. And, 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 and the experience that we, any of us who, who've done archival stuff, um, is that you have to pray hard because um, as many people will who want to help you, um, there, are, there are gatekeepers who profoundly don't want anyone in their archives at all. So, so, so um, it, it's, it's, repeated, it's repeated visits that, that, that matter. Um, um, and and uh, uh, your question about how you find things, um, it, it, it's, it's serendipity. You know, there is so much which... which things are always in the wrong place. You know, no one's cataloging is, is, is ever right, in my experience at all. And so you really just it's, just, it's just bloody time. It's just digging. That doesn't really answer your question at all. It, it, um, it's, I, I'm lucky, I'm, I, I was profoundly lucky in that the, in the, in the Paris 
and Vienna have archives at all. You know, I, one, of the, one of the afterlives of, of my family book is I had a lot of extraordinary quantity of letters from people who said, I come from Lemberg, Lvov, wherever we call it now, you know, and there are no records there. I, I can't do your kind of family story, you know. Uh, uh, and my family didn't have anything to begin with anyway. So how on earth do I begin to try and tell at all that story? You know, there are buildings that I can go to and run my hands over. Uh, and, and, and for so many of, the, of my interlocutors, so many correspondents say, where do I begin? Because there is nothing. It's complicated. Sir. Thank you. Uh, there's a microphone coming to you. Thank you for a marvelous presentation. I have two, two questions. Yeah, great. Really. Uh, one is, uh, what is the overriding mood, you would say, that attaches in Japanese culture to the Netsuke about which you wrote? Is it anxiety? Is it fun? Is it playfulness? Is it history? Is it, is it nature? Or what is it? That's my one question. And the other, I, I, I get the feeling you're, you're your vases, your pottery installations, they remind me of, they look like scrolls. Uh, they look like literature in scrolls. They look like scrolls hidden in a catacomb, uh, as it were, a literary preservation in an old literary form of, uh, of memories. I mean, is that, is that something to, that to, 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 to acknowledge is, yes, yes, yes. Two absolutely lovely questions. The first thing is, the, the, the easy one first, which is that Netsuke are complete delight. They, 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 they're made for delight, and no, no anxiety attaches to them at all. I'm the only person who ever had any angst about Netsuke, <laughs> ever, in any continent. So, so they're pleasure. Um, and um, uh, the, 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 there is a huge connection with me between, between writing and making, and this, of course, is a text as well. It's a kind of poetry. There, there are the cadences and, and phrases there. Um, um, and um, in fact, a, a huge work I did called uh, Breath Term was actually, Atom Vende, was actually based entirely around the poetry of Celan. And actually, it was based around the visualization of Celan's poetry on the page. In terms of the scrolls, you could not have asked a more pertinent question for me, because I've had the most extraordinarily moving um, invitation, which is to make a, a, a work for the new National Library of Israel. And I was in Jerusalem in November, and they're building this extraordinary, uh, very beautiful building, new building. And, and, and actually, so I'm spending time with scrolls at the moment, and spending time thinking about how you, how you hold and preserve and unwrap and unroll scrolls a lot at the moment. So that may well emerge at scale within my work. So not yet <laughs> is the answer. Any other questions, queries? Peter. Some years ago, I took my two sons then aged about 40 or 42, to our somewhat ungrand apartment in Vienna. Uh, I was ever interested in hearing your story. Uh, how did you feel when you showed them 
the ancestral home and how did they react? I, I have to say, it, 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 for me, that was one of the most extraordinary evenings of my life. I was profoundly, I'm going to use the word anxious again, <laughs> uh, about, about this uh, experience of bringing them there. Um, but for me, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my evening. It was the fact that my father and my sons were there in the same space because all I tried to do, and it took seven really very long years, was to try and get my father to talk to my children before it was too late, to try and get that connection happening. And so it's this strange silence between generations um, that happens again and again and again, that actually it's grandparents and grandchildren. and, and, the, and the, So the, their experience was extraordinary because they had their grandfather taking them off and talking about this is where I, I slept and I remember that's where, you know, all the things that for seven bloody years he hadn't told me anything about at all because he couldn't remember suddenly he was telling my sons about. So that's extraordinary. That's an extraordinary thing to, 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 to see. But it's not my... It's, that's, that's wonderful for me, but it's, it's their relationship that happened. Um, and I feel very privileged that it did. Just shout, just shout. I think I was paying attention, and there was one name of a great collector of objects who was not mentioned. Who was not mentioned. Perhaps, perhaps you can guess. I don't think it was a slip. Freud. Well, I, 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 I thought Freud was hanging over all of the yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, I, you know, I've, uh, yes. <laughs> in in all kinds of ways, and in fact, actually, you know, and Freud, you know, had a had a little Netscape, a, a liar, shishi on his on his desk in Vienna, and and same in Hampstead, and 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 Freud, you know, Freud, Freud the collector, you know, as as much as Freud as as much as Freud and and fathers, Freud and, and anxiety, Freud and Vienna. So absolutely Freud. And I, uh, I you know, um, and in fact, Freud and my great aunts as well. So, so you know, so um, and uh, etc. That's that's another evening. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Can we do one more question, ma'am? Is this? I mean, I think these young ladies are getting a workout. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is isn't my curiosity, since you are so open in how you spoke, being where I am in my own life. You look at your own history, it was so Jewish, and then you go to your education, it was so Anglican. And you, and you delve deeper and deeper and deeper into the history, you're not running away from it. 
So how does it put you as a person in between those two religions, you and the children? How do you feel about it? <laughs> Bloody hell. Honestly. Um, well, I, 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 I promised my kids I'd never talk about, their, about religion in them in public, so that's, that's, that's parked. Um, after, I have to say, in, in brackets, when I did my first ever talk about the family in, uh, in, uh, in New York, someone stood up the first question and was saying, well, I hope you're, you're bringing up your kids as nice Jewish kids now, you know? And that was the first thing I thought, well, I'm going home, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's a process. It's a process for me. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I, read, I read Martin Buber for fun. You know, I kind of, you know, I, I, I do own this stuff personally quite deeply, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I very happily brought up in this deeply Christian upbringing, um, you know, um, so I have, I have that, and I have this, this story, and I have, I have a lot of travel in my life, a lot of journeying in my life, a lot of diaspora in my life too. So there are whole kind of emotional connections that I make with the Jewish part of my life, the Jewish side of me, the Jewish becoming of, of all that as well. And, and, it, and, it, and it trips me up, you know? I hadn't expected in Jerusalem to be as you know, to be as moved as I was. You know, I just hadn't expected that. I thought I could cope, you know. So there are things that happen. Um, where it goes, God knows. <laughs> Edmund, thank you. There is a reception. Um, Edmund will be there. He will be happy to avoid you all. <laughs> <laughs>